Welcome to Market Scales, The Trust Revolution, How Trust Unlocks the Future. Hosted by the CEO of White Fox Defense, a global leader in drone airspace security, here's technology entrepreneur, Luke Fox. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Market Scale podcast, The Trust Revolution, How Trust Unlocks the Future. I'm your host, Luke Fox. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're joined by Jeff Graham. Jeff is a strong operational executive with extensive global experience in the computer networking industry. Just as he splits citizenship between the US and the UK, Jeff has split his career with the first 20 years in large publicly traded companies and the last 20 years as a professional CEO at four successful startups. While he loves Silicon Valley, he couldn't leave the juggernauts fully behind as Jeff's been on the board of directors for Netgear for the last 15 years. Jeff, what a pleasure it is to have you on the show. Thank you, Luke. Good to be here. You know, when many people think of startup CEOs, they think of the founders who built the company in their college dorms or mom's garage. However, there's an entirely different kind of CEO known as a professional CEO that is often critical to scaling a rapid growth startup. Can you tell us a bit about what that means and some of your experience there? Yeah, sure. When you come in as, as you call it, the professional CEO, and it is a widely used term, really what you're trying to do is scale the company. And so at the beginning of the cycle, and you asked me earlier what, when, what I do in the first immediate phase of the company. So the first thing I do when I come into a company in the sort of first 30 days, to me, it's a discovery and understanding period. So I try to discover the company and I'm trying to discover and understand the people. In the company, I'm trying to assess, well, of course, what's working and what's not. And particularly in a startup, you're trying to do that as quickly as you can and get to understand what I need to fix and in what priority that would be. But fundamentally, what I'm trying to do, of course, is get to a set of goals and objectives that I'm going to work on. On the people side of the house, it's about getting to know them. And by the people, by the way, I mean, not just the employees, but the investors, the board members, customers, suppliers, partners, like bankers and lawyers and so on. I've got to meet all those people right at the beginning. And what I'm trying to do is to get them to know me in addition to me knowing them. And by knowing each other, what I mean is I'm trying to build trust because that's fundamentally where it starts. And how long does that process usually take? Well, the whole life of the company may sometimes, but uh, you know, this process for me is the first 30 days in the company. You know, trust is a process. It isn't something that's given automatically. In fact, it's a result. It's a result of behavior, of course. And so what I'm doing at the beginning is just demonstrating that I'm open, that I'm listening, that I'm understanding people and getting to know them. And so in these first 30 days, it sounds like you're mostly observing, getting to know people, building those relationships with the team, the leadership team, the employees, investors, etc., from there, how do you know when to start making changes and start actually having action? Is it right after those 30 days? Is it hap- does it happen quickly? Is that a gradual thing? What does that typically look like? You're there to fix a problem, I imagine. Well, the cycle as such is this understanding period. And then, of course, what you do next is you present that to the board. Here's my plan of what I'm going to do, uh, the actions I'm going to take and the people I'm going to hire or the positions I'm going to hire and what I'm trying to do. So the first aspect is coming up with a formulation of the actions I'm trying to do, present that to the board, and then you get about trying to do it. 
But, you know, building on this trust theme, I mean, what I'm trying to do is to become a leader who's trusted. And as I say, trust is, is a result, not a behavior. So what you've got to do is start to demonstrate behavior that builds trust. In other words, you've got to openly state your values, uh, be explicit about them. Honesty and truthfulness, obviously, is, is big ones in any kind of trust relationship, but showing them that I'm open to two-way conversations. And again, showing them is everybody I talked about, not just the employees. Showing them that I'm open to this communication. And with the employees particularly, I share a lot of information about the company. As many schools have thought and how much you should share and not share, I pretty much share everything from cash and uh, number of employees, hiring plans, uh, the number of shares and so on with the, with the employees. And I try to be personal and I try to demonstrate that interest. So for instance, I learn people's names. And when I meet people, I always repeat the name back and I learn the names of the people. And then as I get to know them better, I start to understand their backgrounds too. And when you know them, you start to understand what motivates a person. For example, if an employee is the son uh, of a, a couple of doctors, they've got a very different motivation base as if they were Mexican immigrants, for instance. So I think understanding the person is very key to you understanding the motivations. It's all about building teamwork, of course, in all these things, again, with your customer, with your suppliers, with your, with your partners. It's about us or we, not me. And it's about teams and winning and bringing these things together. You know, I try to be authentic. I tried to appear compassionate and kind as a, as a, uh, as a leader. And I try to look for opportunities that I can show that. I'm looking for chances to demonstrate, to prove, if you like, these things. I've always been a believer that you treat people the way you expect to be treated. So it's kind of setting the, the words. And I will use that term. I'll say, I expect to treat you the same way as I expect you to treat me. You've kind of got to do what you say and walk the talk. You'll hear me when I talk about management a lot of times, talking about consistency of behavior. I've been a big believer for a long time that businesses are trying to deliver a predictable experience to customers. But as a manager, as a leader, you're trying to deliver a predictable experience to the employees in the company. And remember, of course, trust is often stated as a, a big reason of why people follow leaders. Mm. And that's, that's fascinating. One of the things that I think is uh, interesting I kind of want to just reiterate there is that you share you shared that you have to put yourself in the context and really understand the person's context. Where are they coming from? What's their perspective? Uh, maybe their cultural perspective or their family background, and wh how are they showing up uh, to the, to this uh, to this position to allow you to and that, uh, really be able to serve them and build that relationship with them. That's that's a it's an important reminder, especially as we live in such a diverse world where we all have such different perspectives. Now, you mentioned something on the transparency side and uh, believing that uh, in that kind of that school of thought of ultra transparency, uh, just diving into that. There's a lot of people who feel very different about that. And that's very countercultural to decades of uh, the school of thought uh, that's uh, predominated businesses. Why? Why is that important beyond just trust? What is what does that really look like? And is that is it really practical? I imagine this is something you're you're not just preaching here. You've seen this work in action. What does that really look like? 
Yeah, so it, it amounts to the fact that if you are open, then people believe in you. If you start to say, well, I can't tell you that, they then question themselves and say, why are you not telling me that? Is there some reason? Now, there's obviously confidential information in the company that you can't reveal, but a lot of the information you can. And if you start being selective in what you say and don't say, then the employee, from my opinion, starts to say, what is he or she, this leader I'm talking to, telling me and not telling me? So if you want them to trust you, you've got to share the good news and the bad news. And by the way, these things in a startup sometimes are bad news, like if cash gets low, um, you know, you're freezing, hiring, why are you doing that? I would say never spin it, tell the truth. As my father said very early on in my life, tell the truth, Jeff, because you remember what you said. So it's a very important thing. It's, it's, it's the core of this trust element that we have. And you know, in business and interpersonal relationships, even games, they don't work unless you trust your opponent and your opposite number, and you trust them to follow the rules. So you, it's, it's fundamentally based on truth, facts, and evidence. But trust, interestingly, I think, is it has risk, right? It has risk for both sides. But the goal of trust is to minimize the risk. You trust somebody because you're putting your things at risk in your relationship with them as a supplier, as a customer, as a manager, and so on. So honesty and integrity are the kind of under underpinnings of that. And, you know, one of the interesting things I think, for instance, is, is in the company, you always, as a startup, very often you have a failure occur. The product fails, your support fails, something happens with a customer. And the immediate reaction of people is, I, oh my goodness, you know, what are we going to do? It's a problem. They're going to throw us out and so on. And I will always say, we have an opportunity here. This is the opportunity we've wanted. We want an opportunity to show a customer how good we are when it's difficult times. And I find that the difficult times bond that relationship with the customer. Similarly, they bond it with the employee. So if you tell them, look, I'm raising money and I'm getting at this point, we've got this much money by this particular time, and I succeed in doing it, and I've gone through the story because you're going to go through this, this cycle several times in a company, they then believe in me. If it's, I made it look good when they ask me, and employees these days ask you a lot of questions, of course, I think more so in, in companies today than they used to in the, in the past, but they'll ask you how much cash have we got and what have we got? If you say you're not telling them, then they get suspicious. So it's all about this taking opportunities and proving the level of trust you have with them, whether it's a customer, a supplier, an employee, a board, a banker, a lawyer, and so on. That's that's such a, a helpful uh, view on it because, as you said, there's so many there's so many failure points in a in a business, especially a startup. And uh, if you see each one as an opportunity to build that relationship with the team and with uh, with customers and even the public, uh, then you can uh, really leverage that as, as a growth point. I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned the, the, that trust is built when both people or both sides uh, have that rules to the, of the game figured out and agreed upon. I'm, as you have uh, done business globally, uh, something that often comes up is that when you're working with different people that uh, originate from different cultures and different perspectives and there's different uh, customs, that uh, a lot of those rules to the game are a lot more nuanced and uh, much more difficult to navigate. 
certainly you can sit down and read a book about you know doing business in X country, but in practice, how do you build those uh, strong, long-standing relationships that can survive uh, those inevitable failures? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a good question. I, first of all, you they definitely do. I mean, the if you're dealing on a business on a global basis. Um, the developed world is very different from the undeveloped world and so on. The business practices are very different. Um, the honesty is, is, is regarded in different ways in different countries. But what you try to do is to say, I will treat you like I expect you to treat me. And so, of course, in business relationships, you're often forming a contract. But, you know, contracts are not worth the paper they're written on type of philosophy, I think, is true. You have to write them. But they enable you through the process of doing the contract of talking about how we operate and the procedure of how we operate and what we expect from you. Um, you know, for Netgear, for instance, I mean, as you appreciate, we have built a lot of products in Asia over the years, and you have to uh, reveal to your suppliers what your expectations are of their behavior with their employees. This is required of you now in a public company uh, to do these things. So you have to bring them into the fold of saying, look, we operate like this and we expect you to operate like that. To be a supplier for us, you have to do these things. So yeah, it definitely varies, but it's it's about you setting the expectations of what that is. And you do that through talking and you do it through reinforcing whenever you get the opportunity to reinforce that particular point. And you know, earlier I said about consistency. So I'm a big believer in consistency and in inconsistency, makes these things fail. In other words, if one time you don't reinforce this particular point is important, the person on the other side said, well, that's not important to that, that, you know, my partner here, and therefore I won't follow that, that as an important thing. So it's very important to be consistent so that you do a thing once, you say a thing once, and then you say it again the next time, they know that's how you behave. So consistency in the relationship in all of these things is very, very important. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I imagine uh, from a practical standpoint, it's a lot easier to manage that consistency personally. One of the things that uh, we often hear in the news is uh, some some employee did something or there was some scandal at some company or, uh, as you mentioned, a supplier, right? Uh, that to some company that's maybe five levels removed does something wrong or something bad. And it uh, sometimes results in the CEO stepping down. As a very experienced CEO yourself, I'm curious to get your perspective on that. Uh, it's obviously, there's some cases where it's absolutely warranted uh, that the CEO stepped down, but there's other cases where it's a little, it's much more ambiguous if the CEO, and likely the case that the CEO didn't even know that their supplier five levels removed was doing some horrendous thing or someone lower down in the organization org chart was doing something. What, what, what do you make of that? Do you think that's, that's justice uh, or is that some, or is that a misplaced fault? Well, as the Germans say, yein, I think it's a yes and no uh, response, you know, the, uh, um, so as a CEO, you set the values and the business practices of the company. So for an employee to have not communicated those that's in charge of a particular relationship, it may be a fault of the CEO not communicating the values and expectations that were delivered, because clearly the CEO can't be in all of the interactions of, of that you're having. So you've got to spend a lot of time uh, demonstrating your values and what you believe in and what the company believes in, because 
the CEO and the company have to be, you know, one and have to be saying the same thing. So the demonstration of values and, and, and values of the company and, and its interrelationships with suppliers has to be well documented. And in many companies, including Netgear, for instance, we, we have people sign those values. We have them sign these business practices that we believe in. We do uh, online um, uh, exercises to say, you know, these things, uh, scenarios, and show the scenario that says um, this happened and this happened with a supplier and the supplier suggested this. And the employees have to say, no, we wouldn't do that. It's, it's illegal. It's not consistent with our values. And they get a score at the end of that, and they have to eventually pass the test. So we actually go further than just saying it's values. We actually put things in place to make sure that people do conform to that. And it's a little bit of uh, a CYA. I mean, there's a, there's a bit of doing that. But most importantly, it's about ensuring we have consistency right across the company of what we say and do that. And then, of course, when you do get fractions that occur, um, my attitude with all employees and all relationships is your grade A will prove it otherwise. I don't start a relationship with your grade F. You've, you've got nothing to prove to me in the first place in the relationship. Now, that's the old theory X, theory Y management. I believe that you start with that belief of I believe in you. And, you know, I could end up in a situation where I don't, but you don't have to try and prove it to me. We will start with a fundamental assertion at the beginning that you are an honest and high integrity person and you want to work hard, you want to do hard and you'll do the best practice for us. But when you have faults in that, then you take them as an opportunity to reinforce that business practice that you want to achieve. And it may be that you sever that relationship with a particular supplier if it was a supplier issue. Um, it may be that you, you, you learn from it and you, you, you make sure that there's a lesson, uh, the lesson learned from that fracture has been taught to both sides. And so you mentioned this theory X, theory Y. What, can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, that was a, a management theory back in the in the sixties. McGregor, I think, was the professor that that brought it up, and he he said people divide into basically theory X and theory Y in their practices, and so do companies. And the symbolic uh, nature of this, if you imagine you crossed your arms across the chest, is an X, and the the put your arms above your head in a Y shape is a, is is a Y type. And those two, very literal. Too literal, yeah. And the Y, the Y is an open person, as which your arms would be if your arms above your head. And the X is a closed person. And typically, in theory X, people start out with a fundamental belief that people don't have a desire to work hard, that people are dishonest, uh, that you've got to put checks and balances in to uh, encourage that, and you've got to give very intense supervision. A lot of that type of management style existed in, in, in government organizations like armies and police forces and so on. And it was certainly speaking as a European was more what I saw in Europe. When I came to California for the first time now 40 years ago and worked for Hewlett Packard, what I saw was theory Y, you know, where they said, we trust you, we believe in you. There's no checking your timesheet. There's no questioning where you're working. Uh, it, they believed that I would work as hard as possible. I did. And they got out, they gave me objectives, they got out of the way of, of impeding me, and I went on and achieved the objectives. So California, by and large, and the West and the New World is largely theory Y practice. And even America, you know, as you go from East Coast to West Coast, it becomes a little more theory X on the East Coast, it becomes more theory Y on the West Coast. And startups, by and large, are theory Y. I don't believe that theory X works. 
I mean, I don't. I think it's it's a very never uh, destructive. It never works. It, no, I don't think it works. I should clarify my statement. I don't think it works in technology. Okay. Years ago, when I was at Hewlett Packard, I had the chief constable of one of the areas in the UK come and scream me for a couple of days. Well, what's oh, a chief constable for us for us Americans? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, the police uh, police chiefs. Okay. Me. So the police chief, imagine this was a police chief from like LA. Mm. And he came and screamed me as part of his, his employee development to see somebody in another industry. And, uh, and he spent day he spent an hour with me and an hour with different functions in the in the company to understand what they do. And when I met him at the end of the day and he summarized his experience, he said, you know, I've just realized that the police force doesn't trust policemen. He said, you trust everybody here. He said, I'm shocked. He said, it pervades everything we do is there's got to be two people do it because the other one doesn't trust the other one. So he was, he said, I'm just, I'm going to go back and try and build these things in. Clearly we have to have sometimes where two people have to do it just to have backup witness evidence. He said, but it pervades our behavior pattern. In everything we do and i think i could change that so i thought it was pretty impressive you know that's fascinating and uh just to touch briefly on this uh you mentioned that theory x maybe works in well in non-technology is that is uh, I, I don't think it works well I, is ideal <laughs> no, okay it doesn't work anywhere okay uh, uh, no let me be clear so i don't think it works well in any circumstances it's acceptable in things like the armed forces because you, you've got a, an execution organization and it's the way that they work and they've got a way of working for a long time. So, but even in the armed forces, for instance, I think they've learned to be a little more theory why in different places, but in technology specifically, and in the new world where people are relaxed, you know, um, and, and expect equal respect and mutual respect across the organization, I don't think theory X works at all. It's got to be theory Y. And so, as as we look at theory Y, just to use these terms, other than the the fact that probably most humans would agree that respect and trust and uh, are good things, uh, and that they should they're ideals. What are the results that you've seen personally in your career? As it sounds like you've gone from a very theory X mentality, and over your decades in uh, in the technology industry have uh, been really sounds like in the the birthplace of theory why silicon valley yeah what, what are the benefits what's the actual what's the reason to be theory why i was well, the 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 reason or the motivation that you want theory why is i think you get more out of all the employees you get you get faster decision making you don't get this check and balance that occurs in the theory x you believe people and they work harder so i think people actually work harder they're happier in a theory Y environment and they produce more results at the end of the day. You know, if I think back over the, the, the 40 years of the, that I've worked, um, you know, I've seen enormous changes in respect and enormous changes in gender and racial diversity. Although when I first joined Hewlett Packard and I came to California, it was like working on the, the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. It was very diverse. <laughs> now, predominantly it was still white guys but there was a lot of diversity in the organization, even less so diversity in females, but still quite a lot of racial diversity. And that's changed over the years. But what I think has happened, and I think it, is, it is, has been very important change, is we've changed respect. So respect uh, is, a, is, a, is a word we often use. We use it often with our kids and we're training people and you've got to respect and so on. 
And I, I, it's my daughter, for instance, works in Texas, and she's she was puzzled as when she went to Texas. You know, she had to be referred to as Mrs. or her full name or a title in front of it, <laughs> and so on. And whereas in California, you know, it's always your first name, right? In that in that behavior. Now they would say, well, that in Texas they would say, well, that shows respect, but mm. that shows respect to the person who's the one in the control position. It doesn't show respect necessarily to the person who's in the subordinate position. So to me, respect is keeping it even. So that's why I would call my doctor by their first name, for instance, and why I would call the employees by the first name, and I'll expect they'll do the same for me. And by the way, when it, in, for instance, in a, in a doctor relationship, I always wait to see how they greet me. And they will, most California doctors these days will greet you by your first name. They won't call you, you know, Mr. Graham. And I will, I know their first name, so I'll go back and give them the first name and see how they react. And usually it's okay. But, but the, the, the respect becomes a, a leveling aspect. You think in, in 40 years too, look at universities. It used to be the professor graded the students. Now, clearly the professor mm. still grades the students, but most leading universities have the students grading the professor now as well. So we've, we've leveled the respect off. Good and bad, there's some, there's some downsides to that as well. But I think in all your personal relationships, it isn't I'm the CEO, therefore I'm more important than you. I'm one member of the team. You know, I'm the coach, as, as I think I've said to you before, Luke, I see myself as a soccer coach in the way I work and the way I manage. And a coach doesn't set themselves, you know, shouldn't set themselves above the team. They're a member of the team and they have a specific role. You know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned the coach. Uh, something that I didn't mention in the intro is that you've been a soccer coach, a youth soccer coach for many, many years. And uh, one of the books that I'm reading right now is The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Linciani, who talks often ab about youth sports teams as an analogy for tech startups, which I is is in a bit uh, was shocking at first. Right, thinking about a bunch of kids running around on a in a field, comparing it to uh, companies that are trying to build multi-billion-dollar companies, and yet uh, Patrick makes uh, the strong case that there's a lot of similarities there. It sounds like you might be of a similar ilk. Yes, I'm definitely of that same ilk. I, I'm of course I'm a big soccer fan or football as we call it in England, um, <laughs> and uh, you know I, I I watch and I'm a I'm a a student of looking at the coaching techniques of many of the, the soccer coaches. I'll tell you some of them. I mean, a famous one, Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson of Manchester United. If you read his books on coaching, it's very hard to figure out how he does it. And I'm not sure that he knows how he does it, at hmm. least in a way that you can describe it and why he was successful. But you can describe what has made him successful and what has made other coaches successful. So I think what is that? Well, so and and, and it, this is where the analogy would come back to the to the to a startup, for instance. The first thing you're doing is as a soccer coach is you're assessing the ability and the skills of the team you've got. So if you need a goalkeeper, you don't hire a centre forward, right? You don't hire a striker. You hire a goalkeeper. So you you've got to assess: Have I got the team on the field? And this is a CEO. You're going to do this with your executive team. Have I got the team on the field that can win? Now, you're going to say, I've got a superstar, I'm not so sure about these other two, and I'm missing these other positions. And so you're going to, you're going to build the best ability team with the right skill sets for the job that they have to do. I'm also a big believer in fitness and stamina, 
and you've known me and you know that I'm, I'm a, I've been focused as being a professional athlete as well. And, and therefore, I believe you've got to have a lot of energy. What fitness and stamina gives you is energy. So you've got to have the energy that doesn't make you feel like I'm tired, I need to quit. Persistence, determination and drive. And professional athletes have those. And so I build that in and I, I talk about that as a manager and as a CEO to my employees. I said, I want you to be fit. Your home life, your health comes ahead of the company because if it doesn't, you're not fit enough to do your job and you need to do that. I also think then teams teams win early on and kids teams particularly, um, we would win all our early games very easily because my team was understood disciplined execution. So what do you do at a corner kick in soccer? What do you do at a free kick? What do you do at a goal kick? And my teams understood where they, what to do before other teams had even gone through that. So early on, when I would take a youth team, I would focus on getting their fitness up. And of course with kids, you can do it in a couple of weeks. You can get them from no fitness to complete fitness in two weeks. And I focus on disciplined execution and we'd win all our initial games just based on those two things alone. Fitter kids and kids that knew what to do, where to stand, what to do, what the process was. Then as you progress, you need the more disciplined stuff. And, and by the way, the disciplined execution, if you come back into a company, is about knowing what to do. I always say, because I'm a consistent manager, you shouldn't wonder what Jeff would say. You will know what Jeff would say in those situations because I'm always consistent. And you know what to do in a certain circumstances because we've talked about the disciplined execution that you need to do to be successful. Now, as you get more sophisticated in this, and the, 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 again, the parallel to the company, it's about strategy and game plan, of course. What are your short-term objectives? What are your long-term objectives? Where are you going? Where do you want to be? So I'd always look out three years. I think in a startup, longer than three years is, is too long. But, you know, a three-year plan, a, quarterly, a yearly plan, a quarterly plan, all of those things come together. I've also been a huge um, proponent of competitive analysis. So when I would coach kids soccer, I'd take them along to the, to the, uh, the opponent's games. And I'd, be, oh, wow. and I'd sit the kids down with me and I'd say, you see that kid, he always goes to the left. He always pushes the ball to the left. So you know he's always going to do that. And you see that other kid, he gets emotional. And he, he loses himself when he gets emotional. And we would encourage that player to get emotional when we play them and he loses it. <laughs> um, so we look at the, com the competitor and do the compet competitive, competitive analysis. And so I'm a big believer in competitive analysis. I think it's largely done very poorly, by the way, in most startups. You know, they say, oh, we know the competitor. Well, have you got the product? Have you got them in-house? Have you taken it apart? At Nikkei, for instance, we can tell you exactly what the bill of materials cost is of the competitor's Wi-Fi routers. We know it in detail. So you've got to get your competitor's products. You've got to have your competitors. Now, an interesting thing I will do as a CEO in a startup is I go and meet my competitor's CEOs. Because very often... You're, wow, you're, it seems pretty revolutionary. Well, very often, you know... Why? You, what's, what's the point? Well, exactly this. It's very often your issue isn't the competitor, it's the market. So you want to grow a market. When you're coming out with new technology, which inevitably you are in, in the high-tech industry, you've got to build a market. And why try to build that market alone when your competitor CEOs have the same challenge? So I would go to them and I'd say, let's, let's not form a circle and shoot each other. 
let's form a circle and shoot outwards. So let's talk the same language. Let's use the same market sizing terms. Let's use the same words that we describe when we're describing this new concept together. And, and we need to do that when we're talking to analysts because our job in the early stage is building the market. And if you win or I win, that's how it is. But if we look at this as a pizza, you get a bigger slice, I get a smaller slice. What I want is a bigger pizza. That's kind of what I'm driving towards in that. And then the last thing I do very importantly is attitude and teamwork. So, you know, I make sure the attitude is right and the pace is right in the company and working as a team. And I, one of the funny things I used to do, I used to love this and I've told this story many times. When I first get my kids together at the soccer game at the beginning of the season, I'd say to them, are you committed? And they'd all nod their heads up and down and say, yeah. And I said, do you know what commitment means? And they'd shake their head, no. And I said, well, commitment means if you do not turn up, we lose. Are you all going to turn up? Are you committed to playing on this team the whole season? I want you here for every practice the whole season. They'd all shake, shake their, nod their heads and agree. I remember I got a call from a mother one time. and She says, you know, um, Luke's got to go to a wedding this Saturday, and, uh, but he's told me he's, he's committed to come to the, the soccer game. I said, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Your seven-year-old son knows what commitment is. Mm. I, I said, what time is the wedding? She said, three o'clock in the afternoon. I said, well, we're playing in the morning. We will get him to the wedding. You guys got the wedding. We will deliver him to the wedding. Wow. And he'll make that. Meet the commitment. Such a teachable moment. Yes, yeah. And even for the, the parent. Even for the parent. And, you know, commitment is what... Commitment is the first thing I ask for, by the way, of executive team. If you're not committed, I don't want you. Don't sit on the fence. You can sit on a fence for a couple of days, but I want you committed. I want you in the team and, and, uh, and going. So, you know, when I come in, I look at the team as first and foremost about commitment. You know, what I, what I love about that analogy is not just how teachable, teachable of a moment it was for the, the player and for the parent, but is that you went beyond and said, you know, I'm not expect when I say commitment, I'm not expecting you to blindly follow me. I'm going to do my part to help you achieve good that point. commitment. To <laughs> that's, uh, that's brilliant. Yeah, good point. I, what I described was things that you do as opposed to the behaviors. The behaviors you've got to do is you've got to be inspirational. You've got to be optimistic. No leader is a leader that's pessimistic. You've got to be optimistic. So I don't mind a bit of optimism, a bit of over-optimism. I'd rather have that than pessimism. You've got to be positive. You've got to be forward-looking. I, When I coach, it's we did this wrong, we fixed that, this is what we're doing in the future. I don't store up stuff for a performance evaluation in a year's time and go back to, you did this little thing here and there. I do it at the time the event occurred. That player beat you, he went round to your right, you knew he goes to the right, you didn't stop him with that, what are you gonna do next time? I'm gonna go to the right. So now we've got it. So it's, it's positive and forward-looking. I'm not, uh, there's no retribution in what you do. Uh, so positive coaching, clear directive. If you make a mistake, it's collective fault. So as you know, little kids, they'll tend to blame the goalkeeper when the ball goes in the goal. I go, it's not the goalkeeper's fault. The ball shouldn't have been down there in the first place. It's all our fault. Let's focus on how we solve possession of the game and possession of the thing. But it's the same in the company. And do, we, we were big always in, in the soccer teams, and I'm big at work as well, of doing collective assessment. And a collective assessment is what do we do well? Because I think it's important to say that. 
well, what are we doing badly? What could we have got better in that game? What we could have got better in this quarter? So when I set objectives, I'm as interested in the objectives in a company of the ones I missed as I am the ones we achieved. It isn't a feel-good scorecard. It's why did we miss that one? Did we just describe it wrong? Did, you know, did something change and it's okay that we missed it? Or was it something about our behavior or it was tough and we didn't uh, you know, want to do the tough stuff, we just did the easy stuff and so on. So I'm big on collective, collective assessment and building the team's trust in each other. You know, if you have kids, often there'll be a kid that's weaker than anybody else on the team. And so what you want to do is, is to use the whole team. If you've got one kid that the others don't pass the ball to, the team won't do as well. So you've got to build that trust and you've got to build the confidence of everybody up in the game of what they do. And it's personal leadership, personal leadership on the field, standing up and doing it. it you count, you, you count. You know, I often say in a company, I'll say it's like being in a canoe. You know, we're in the same canoe. It isn't your end can go underwater. You go underwater, we all go underwater. It's, t it's, it's together. And you've got to have that desire to win and you've got to celebrate the achievements both on and off the field. So as, as you share about that, it's, it gets me thinking, we talk a lot about team versus family and it's uh, at, at work, right? In the, in the workplace, it's often people say, you know, we're one big family. And one of the criticisms of the quote unquote family approach is that in a family, even if, you know, you have a, a crazy cousin and a crazy uh, uncle, you still, they're still part of the family and you, you, you support them and you, you put up boundaries and that such, but they're still part of the family as part of a team though. You're really focused on the, the goal, the end, the end in mind and the execution. And there's some people who just aren't right for that based off of a variety of reasons. I'm curious, how do you, what's your view on that? And people saying, you know, this company, we're a big family versus we're not a family, right? Taking the exact strong opposite approach, but then how do you then finally determine who should be a part of the team and who shouldn't be part of the team? Yeah, I, I think there is a difference between a family and the family structure and, and uh, the company structure. I mean, it's the, the drunk uncle you put up with him, you know, but uh, you don't uh, necessarily want those in your company. Um, it's, it's a good point. I'll tell you, when I left Hewlett Packard to go in my first startup, um, and uh, I did 15 years at HP and then went to do a startup and then I went back in a public company at 3Com where I, I ran all product development at 3Com. Um, but in, in the first startup I did, I have to say, when I went in, I was a bit of a deer in the headlights. And I was a deer in the headlights because the founders of the company were destructive. They would shout at each other. They would, you know, scream and shout. They'd leave a meeting. They wouldn't turn up. They behave badly. I'd never experienced such bad behavior before in in the uh, in Europe Packard. I mean, you know, it, large companies, as they will, will knock off the edges and won't hire people that behave badly. And likewise, a lot of those people who do behave badly find themselves in small companies, and they often find them, uh, found them, and and therefore they can behave badly in those environments. The answer is you fire them. So. It took me a while to get to that particular point, but to realize, although these are the founders, they've got to go. And I, and in two of my startups, I've had to do that. Uh, so it, it happens. It's unfortunate. It's tough. And sometimes it, it's particularly dangerous because these, these founders can have, you know, own the crown jewels from a knowledge standpoint. Um, 
and I don't go, you know, I'm not the, uh, the Trumpesque you fired kind of mentality. It is, look, your behavior is doing this. I need you to modify your behavior. I will always take the time to say, I need this behavior modeled and changed. If it doesn't change, they're out. And that's true of anybody, by the way, of the organization. And I would expect it's true of me. So, you know, if we're not, if we're not pulling as, as strongly and as well as we could, or we've got any bad behavior, then you've, you've, got, to, you've got to try and take it out. And sometimes you can ch modify behavior by peer pressure. I've used at times, uh, um, you know, the, the team to tell the other member of the team um, what it is they don't like about him or her. And, and, it, and it works, you can do that. You know, peer pressure is often a bigger pressure than the boss pressure, particularly if you're dealing with a, a particularly stubborn person. The team can often tell. It allows better. the team to really own yeah, it. Yeah, and we would the way we do is exercises. I'd, I'd say name a strength and a weakness of all those around the table. And I'd often, I'd not often, I'd always start with me. Tell me what you think my strength is, and tell me what your weakness is. And when I went around the team, I'd say, and by the way, as we go around here, none of you can give the same strength and same weakness as the other one. So I'm going to end up if I have <laughs> six guys, I have six strengths and six weaknesses. And then at the end of that, I'd say so. Which of these is the most, for all of you, which are the most important of these six weaknesses we've identified? How can I improve that weakness? And they tell me. Now they've seen me be willing to take feedback and be open. And then when they share it with the others, and then what I do, I take all the input. I don't say, Luke said this about you. I say, we've got these six points, six strengths, six weaknesses. And these are the, what's seen as your six strengths. I always start with the strengths. And here's the six weaknesses and, and the individuals would go, wow. Now I've done that doing it on a one-on-one -on -one basis and I've done it in teams basis. You have to be careful sometimes you have to know your team well before you do it on a collective basis, but, um, it's very powerful is to give peer feedback to the, to the individuals and you often can change behavior better that way through that. And so that's, and if I'm hearing you correctly, that is uh, a real-time 360-degree review. Yes. Right? And, and so everybody is looking in each other's eyes and hearing the joy of you do this great and the struggle of this is, this is really hard when you do this, it affects the team negatively. Oh, yeah. Is that, is yeah. That, am I hearing that correctly? Yes, exactly. And, the, and, you know, there can be all sorts of odd reasons and things you never knew come out of those things. And by the way, as CEOs, you know, if one isn't comfortable doing it, you can you can bring a facilitator in to do it. You know, facilitators can do it and do it in a, in a, a non-threatening way. You've got to see it as I'm not trying to do a report. It, and I will always say I love being coached. You know, as an athlete, again, I'm used to coaching. I seek out coaching. A lot of people do not like coaching. And sometimes it's just their personality and sometimes they've had a bad experience of that. But my attitude is, how do you get better if you're not coached? How can we improve? And you want to improve, I want to improve, we want the organization to improve. So we buy into the bigger goal of going for improvement. And improvement is achieved by good coaching. And, you know, I'll also say to people, I, I became a manager when I was 22, so I was pretty young. And I was having guys 40 years old and so on that was reporting to me. And clearly they saw me as a bit of an upstart, you know, and young. And I would say to them, look, think of me as, as a mirror. I said, the best coaches are not often, the very rarely were the best players. So I'm not saying I'm a better player than you. 
I'm saying I can be a coach for you. I can be a mirror for you. I can, I can give you the feedback. I can be supportive. I can clear the way so you can do your job more effectively. And that was a, a big part of what, what I did uh, in, in, in my early management career. That's, that's fascinating, especially as we, th- we think about coaching. Uh, one of the things that I, that, I often, that I often share is that there's two ways to learn something and grow, to your point. One is through coaching and working with somebody, and the other is through mistakes. Yeah. And the more that we can minimize having to make those mistakes to learn, the better. Yeah, but uh, mistakes are good. You know, working for a bad manager can be a good experience. It teaches you what you're looking for in the future. Uh, it teaches you what you won't do yourself as a manager. Um, and having a mistake or, you know, not achieving something in a particular company, uh, would, would, it can also learn a lot from them. So I don't see them as bad. And, and by the way, I mean, I've done five startups. I had one spectacular one, um, you know, a couple of, of mediocre ones and a couple of the ones are great. So they, but they all, we sold them all, but you know, that's always going to be the case. And it's the same with employees, by the way. I've always said, if you hire five people, you're going to have one top performer, you're going to have three okay performers, and you're going to have one that you need to get rid of probably. Uh, High growth companies, by the way, in that regard, have a challenge because they often don't get rid of that bottom performer uh, because they're so busy. Why not? Because they're so busy hiring in, they're so busy growth. Mm. It's and it's one of the times you know when when and public companies go through this they go through hiring restrictions. They are the times when you tighten the team up and you get better at the team because you get rid of the poor performance. But when high growth environments, you'll always end up with a with a, a, a layer in the company that is not as performing, and you're not doing a service to the rest of the employees. I mean, my attitude is is we measure performance and we rank people in order to make sure that the people who are working their best realize that we're moving on the people that are not and we're doing something about it. It's about respect for those that are committed and those that are performing. And, and again, you know, getting rid of people out of companies, as long as you do it respectfully, as long as you've been honest, long as you don't shock them, long as you're giving them plenty of warning and you've told them what the issue was, not a problem. So, so much sage, sage wisdom there. In our final moments together, what do you want to share with everyone and ensure that everyone hears about the importance of trust and what we can do to create a better, more trusting world? Goodness, that's a big one. Um, And it's a time when I think trust has been questioned a lot, right? With our politicians, with environments, with becoming part of organizations. I think we have to reinforce the importance of trust and mutual respect. and I, and I put them both as two separate things because you have to respect the other person. You have to respect the other side. As you said, when we opened up, people come in with different perspectives. They're not better or worse. They're different. And you have to respect the different and you manage them in that way. So I hope the one thing that we do is reinforce the importance of trust and mutual respect. And we base all of this on honesty and integrity. And we show the importance of teamwork across the world, across solving big problems like climate change or, you know, uh, uh, the pandemic uh, solutions and so on, that we, sh- we share the importance of shared goals. It's, you know, while I applaud anybody doing what they do for their country, we also need to say what, what impact have we got in shared goals as humanity at the same time across organizations. And you've got to demonstrate mutual interest, right, and not self-interest. So anytime it appears a self-interest, you've got to get rid of that and, and strike that behavior out. 
And that's, you know, an important thing as a CEO. The CEO shouldn't be one rules for the CEO and one rules for others. And very often CEOs fail for that reason, by the way. I mean, you've seen, you know, my alma mater, uh, Hewlett Packard, had a, a series of CEOs that started to think they were emperors or kings and behave like that. And uh, they got brought down for those, those reasons. Uh, so you're never too big to be taken out as a CEO and you've got to ensure that you do all of these things. And I think then you'll be successful. Wow. So, so, so much built in there and so much more that we could unpack, but, uh, this has been such a helpful conversation. Uh, one of the big things that I've, that I've heard inter, uh, intertwined throughout this conversation is consistency and it's, and the importance of consistency across the organization between the leaders and those who are following them and, uh, consistency across the market through, uh, ensuring uh, competitors are working consistently uh, and operating. It's, it's really quite, a, it's quite an interesting theme that's emerged. You know, there was a Harvard Business Review done in the, in the 70s, I believe, and it was, I went through it in business school, and it said people don't go to McDonald's for a burger, they go for a predictable experience. And if you think about it, that is what America is about. It's what brands are about, is people expect certain things with certain brands and certain uh, technologies. And you, the moment that you break that and you don't deliver a predictable experience, you fail. Such, uh, such sage uh, words to leave, uh, leave us on and just really reiterating that uh, the consistency and that transparency and setting those values, displaying those values, all of that creates the trust that allows companies to be able to flourish. So with that, I want to thank you so much for joining us. And to our audience, if you've applied any of this uh, advice that Jeff has shared and that we've discussed today to your business, or your career, shoot us a message, tell us about your experience, and we might just share it on the next episode. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Luke. And for all those out there, join us next time on The Trust Revolution. <laughs>